to be talking about. 31st of December, well, a warm uh, old, year's, old Year's Eve, I suppose, to everybody. And we've just read about Christ um, making that prophecy that if they were to destroy the temple, he will raise it up in three days. Who of you uh, know what this is a picture of? Hopefully most of you would know what that's a picture of. That's a picture of um, the new high-rise buildings that are, you can see when you cross over the Narrows Bridge called City, uh, City Square, Perth City Square or something like that. And um, when you look at them, they look really good. In fact, just before um, Santos bought over Conoco Phillips, we were going to move into that tower on the, on the, on the right, the, the, the cylindrical one. And I was super excited because they've got an infinity pool that looks out over the, over the freeway. For no other reason was I excited. And then my dreams were dashed uh, in a number of different ways. But I'm not showing you that to explain to you about my wishes for an infinity pool. I'm showing you this because I wanted you to compare Herod's temple with that landscape. Now, not a super clear image, and I kind of thought that this might be the case because I know that our projector doesn't have great contrast like a computer does, screen does. But you can sort of barely make out there the, uh, the temple. And to sort of give it a bit of scale, because especially what you can see there is you can't see the steps and things to consider how big that really is, that's with that center building next to it, if it was to be placed on the same plane as that. And you can see that the temple itself is just under halfway as tall as what that middle building was. So again, I thought I'd just put in a picture of my house next to the temple in case you had actually missed it. It actually was there from the beginning. If you hadn't seen it, uh, there it is. But just to give you a bit of perspective as to how big this temple was. It really wasn't 46 years of unions and, and, and city planning approvals and strikes. It was a big temple. And it's no surprise it would have taken about 46 years to build. So I thought, well, maybe I'd give it a bit of scope if I did it the other way around. So there's again that image. And if we sort of just grade out the back and there's the temple next to it. And you see, again, it would have been a significant structure site, even on this view looking um, across the Narrows Bridge, if we were to swap out the Woodside building for uh, Herod's temple. So quite a, a big building. Now, <clears throat> in talking about temples in the Bible, how many... I thought for a moment I was going to have to do the, uh, the men's class on the fly. And so I was thinking to myself, how, how could I draw this out? Um, how many... And I thought, oh, the one question I'd like to ask is, how many temples do we have mentioned in the Bible. And when you look at this, you might say, well, you're kind of giving it away, three. But there's actually four, depending on how you want to interpret the first one. So just to give, again, coming back to my sermon, a sense of scale, the American football field, because we're all Americans and know how big a football field is. But I just used it in there to, to give it scale. So I sized all of these based on that same measurement of American football field. So that would have been the tabernacle that Moses was asked to build. And as you can see, they'll probably fit into sort of a quarter-ish of a football field. Um, and then Solomon's temple, a little bit bigger, maybe three-quarter the size of a football field. And I will just point out that um, the court of the tabernacle and Solomon's temple 
don't have the outer court in this table of comparison, just to compare the pair accurately. Um, and then this would have been Herod's temple. Now that's not the complete outer court, but generally we have the temple, the inner court, and then the woman's courtyard. So again, just looking at the size of the temple and the inner court at least versus the others. And we see even then Solomon's temple would have probably the whole temple and inner court would have almost fitted into that temple itself. And, well, you may say, well, what's the fourth temple? I'm pretty sure most of you have already got there. But to compare the size of this fourth temple, the first thing we have to do is reduce the size of the slide because that's how big this fourth temple is. And we're talking about Ezekiel's temple. So Ezekiel's temple with the outer court and the inner court, obviously, as I said, the, the other ones didn't really have the outer court, but this was a big temple. In fact, Herod's temple and inner court and part of the outer court would have only just fitted into, sorry, would have fitted relatively comfortably into Ezekiel's temple's inner court. <clears throat> So I want to look at this morning a little bit at Ezekiel's temple as we consider this idea of the old and the new. And I fully understand and appreciate and have designed the fact that you might not quite be following how the old and the new marries in with what we're talking about. Although hopefully the gears are working and we're talking about this temple that was presented to Ezekiel in the Old Testament that we haven't physically literally seen today. Matthew Henry, in talking about Ezekiel's temple, says, um, so this is found in Ezekiel chapter 40, so if you want to start paging through there or punching it in in your smartphones or tablets, that's where we're going to be spending a little bit of time. Matthew Henry, when talking about Ezekiel 40 through 44, says, Here is one continued vision, beginning at this chapter to the end of the book, which is justly looked upon to be one of the most difficult portions of Scripture in all the book of God. The Jews will not allow any to read it until they are 30 years old and tell those who read it that though they cannot understand everything in it, when Elias comes, he will explain it. So I thought to myself, you know, the Jews had to be 30 years old to read this. I think I've just cracked old enough to start really understanding what this temple is all about. Because for many years, I've you know, over the years, I've read the Bible from cover to cover a few times. And kind of whenever I've got to Ezekiel's temple, I just kind of read through it, you know. And in fact, um, Sister Wendy and I were just talking this morning about how many times we read the Bible. And you've read over certain passages so many times. And almost every time you read it, just something else jumps out at you. Well, I can um, maybe a little bit embarrassedly say that when I read these four chapters nothing jumped out. I just couldn't work it out. It was just too much for my brain to handle. And so I thought, being just a few years older than 30, I would now take the time of qualified to, I'm going to make the effort to understand this temple. And as I read these chapters, it really, the first thing that really struck me is the size of this temple. And when you put it into the perspectives that I've hopefully have been able to do for you, this was a big temple. It would have been huge. Something else that Matthew Henry says, talking about huge, the dimensions of these visionary buildings being so large 
In fact, the new temple, more spacious than the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem of a greater extent than all of the land of Canaan, plainly intimates. So in other words, what he's saying there, probably didn't read that with the right nuances, but what he's saying there is that the old Jerusalem could have almost fitted inside this new temple. Uh, plainly intimates, as Dr. Lightfoot observes, that these things cannot be literally but must be spiritually understood. And hopefully, again, that's another clue as to the old and the new. So Ezekiel's temple, a little bit of background, is the last time Ezekiel had been to Jerusalem in around Ezekiel 8 through 11, he was shown the decay of the city, the moral decay of the city, the reason he and the rest of the Jews had finally been shipped out into exile to Babylon because God had finally said, I have had enough. I've had enough of this idolatry. I've had enough of you spurning my temple and all the holiness that it's called to be, and I'm sending you away. And so this time in Ezekiel chapter 40, in fact, Ezekiel chapter 8 verses 1 through 5 reads, And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God came upon me. And then I looked, and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward uh, fire, and from his waist and upward like the appearance of the brightness, like the color of amber. And he stretched out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my hair, and, in the, and the Spirit lifted me up between the heaven and earth, and he brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door, uh, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the plain. And then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now towards the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. So in the temple court, there was an altar to a false god in this temple. And so God had said, I've had enough, and shipped the Jews, his people, off to Babylon. And so now, so this was the last time, that's in Ezekiel chapter 8, when Ezekiel was taken to Jerusalem. Now, Ezekiel is taken to Jerusalem again. And in Brother Ren Kuhn's message at the Lord's uh, Supper this morning, he actually made reference to the significance of the 10th day of the first month. That was the start of the Passover. And so keep that in mind as we read Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1 through 5. In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, so the first month of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was captured, on the very same day, the hand of the Lord came upon me and took me there. In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it toward the south was something, looking, was something like the structure of a city. He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood at the gateway. And he said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything that I show you. For you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple. In the man's hand was a measuring rod six cubits long and a cubit, and the, a cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. And he measured the width of the wall structure, one rod high and one rod wide. So like Moses, Ezekiel was taken to a high mountain 
and was shown, if you will, the promised land, this promised temple that was almost the size of a full city. <clears throat> and that's roughly what he was shown in terms of the dimensions that he was given. And again, I apologize, the contrast doesn't do it a super amount of justice, but it was a very, very large structure, which you cannot get from this image anyway, whether or not the contrast was good, but it was a massive structure. The heights of those gate buildings are 30 meters high. It is huge. Bigger is not always better, true, but biblically, bigger does seem to indicate, well, does normally indicate that God is above all. God is bigger than all. He is greater than all. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork. And I am a firm believer that what this verse is saying is that in as much as scientists cannot find the ends of heaven, cannot find the ends of space, cannot find any slowing down of the beauties and the mag uh, magnificent planets and stars that are out there, it is just a testimony to the size and the volume and the greatness and the power of God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 18, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, he says something similar. He says, But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And you must understand for a, a Jew to be saying, for heaven and the heaven of heavens. So the Jews believed there were third heavens. And, and Solomon yeah, is recognizing that not even space, the wisest man that walked this planet, knew that not, or could understand that not even the heavens of heaven, not even space can contain the magnitude of God. And so we see here that this temple is big. And so what it represents must be big. Ezekiel's temple, I, <clears throat> sorry, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 16 and 17, we read, There were beveled window frames in the gate chambers and in their intervening archways on the inside of the gateway all around, and likewise in the vestibules. There were windows all around on the inside and on each Gatepost were palm trees. Then he brought me into the outer court, and there were chambers and a pavement all around the outer court. Thirty chambers faced the pavement. Right, so a couple of things there. So if you're anything, whoopsie, if you're anything like me, I had to read that a number of times, and I had to go and look up what all these different words mean. But pretty much what it's saying is that there was a monstrous gateway, probably the size of this church building, to be honest huge gate just how to get into the outer court and inside this gateway was enormous archways and then there were rooms inside this gateway and in these rooms inside this gateway there were windows windows upon windows rows of windows so you can imagine these beautifully constructed archways and then beautifully constructed windows so you can imagine everywhere there would have just been light streaming into these buildings there would have been dark nooks and crannies in this gateway or in these guardhouses, there would have been light coming in from everywhere. So a light-filled gateway. And as you walk through this gateway, you would be struck with <clears throat> carvings and emblems of palm trees going up and down the columns and the walls of this beautiful gateway that's been built. The pavement, that word in, in Hebrew for the pavement that he talks about, 
is of onyx stone. And again, that's reference from Hebrew, which you see there, that pavement was made of, sorry, not onyx, porphyry um, stone, which has the color of burning coal, so like this deep bronze color to it. So you can imagine the light shining in from everywhere and almost shining up from the pavement on this, on this stone that had been laid for the pavement. A beautiful, magnificent, shining temple. This temple was beautiful. And not only was this temple guarded, if you think about the wall, the wall was one cubit high and one cubit wide. That is about three, just over three meters high and three meters wide. So to give you an idea of three meters, three meters is probably just below the top of your roof when looking at your house if you've got a, an average size house. Or if you walk out, probably um, just above that um, that emergency exit sign there. Three meters high and three meters wide was this wall. So it was guarded, a wall all around the whole temple. These gates, monstrous sized gates to get in. And then there is no changing of the guard. If we look at Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2 through 7, we read, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to, de when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kiba, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord, which came into the temple by the way of the gate, which faces towards the east, the Spirit lifting me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple." And then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. So you can imagine the, Lord, the glory of the Lord coming in by the way of the east gate, shining, reflecting off the pavement, if you will, going into the temple. And he turns around and he says to Ezekiel, this will be my dwelling place forever. Not only was it guarded, but there will be no changing of the God. God, the creator, will be in that temple forever. The temple is forever. <clears throat> Christ has come. Christ has come. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 through 10, we read the following. Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 10. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. And then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. If you remember the picture of the temple that we had up, the altar was right in the middle of the inner court, which was positioned in an exact line, an exact sight alignment of all the gates entering into this temple. From, the outer, from right outside, if you looked straight through 
the outer gate to the inner gate, you would see the altar on the front. Christ is our sacrifice, and he is the centerpiece of our salvation. He is the hope for which we look forward to. And he says, or it says in the Old Testament, Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So we see the stability of God, but also then in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, we see that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no changing with Jesus Christ. He has come, and he will not change. In Ezekiel chapter 40 and verse 4, to repeat that verse, the man said to him, said to Ezekiel, said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes, hear with your ears, so yeah, look with your eyes, hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here that I, in order that I might show it to you, declare all that you see to the house of Israel. Ezekiel was shown the temple that would represent the church of God. The church that offers salvation to those who are seeking truth in Christ Jesus. That all those who are looking through the gates can see the sacrifice that was paid for their souls and for their hope. And that all those that choose to walk in through those gates, and those are narrow gates... You see, broad is the way that is outside. As big as what that temple is, if you can imagine set on a piece of earth, as big as what the tallest buildings in the world are, we can't see them from here. When you get there, they might look spectacular, but from a distance, they're not that big. As big as what this temple is, and as what that largeness represents in terms of the church and the all-encompassing power and God of, of our Father and of our Creator, Those gateways, if you can imagine them in comparison to the temple, were narrow. Narrow is the way that leads to salvation. A few there are who enter it. We are to hear with our ears, to see with our eyes, and to set our hearts upon all that Christ has taught us. Where is your heart set? For those outside, I pray that their hearts be set on finding truth. But for those inside, we have an equally important command, and that is that we love the church. The church that Christ bought with his blood in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, but also as a commandment from God, from his son and from our Savior Jesus Christ. In John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35, the new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, Jesus commands husbands to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Christ loved the church. Where is your heart set? Do you love the church? In Ezekiel 44, verse 6 through 9, God says, Now say to the rebellious house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, Let us have no more of all your abominations, when you brought in foreigners uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary to defile it, my house. When you offered my food, the fat and the blood, then you broke my covenant because of all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner 
who is among the children of Israel. And we see a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, we, we have a new temple. Even though this is the old temple, so to speak, in terms of the fact that it comes from the Old Testament, the vision and the prophecy is old. It comes from Ezekiel through the days of the, of the exile in Babylon. But this old temple is the new temple. And we see that in this new temple, all things are made new. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these things are trustworthy and true. In Revelation 21, verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. As we go into this new year, I pray that we look at the old year and learn from our mistakes and draw encouragement from our successes. And as we go into the new year, I pray that we look with a renewed vigor and spirit upon the church and upon our work in the church, upon our work for God and our life for Him, recognizing that He wants pure and holy and committed people to serve Him and to remain faithful to Him, just as He serves and remains faithful to us. We have an opportunity it really doesn't make a difference in the terms of our lives and the timeline of our lives. Like nothing special is going to happen between today and tomorrow physically. But we as human beings kind of enjoy a sense of symmetry and a sense of continuity and maybe even that comfort that we find in, in the habits. And as we begin this new year, it is a new start. It is an opportunity for us to reflect and for us to consider where have we come from and where are we going to? And I pray that we will see Christ working in us and us making every effort to work for Him, to love His church, to work for His church as we strive to grow His church in the name of His Son. I pray that this has encouraged you and uplifted you and, and that as we go into the new year, it is a good one for us each and ultimately a fruitful one for us in Jesus' name. Thank you. Thanks for listening.